This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A Republican Wisconsin state representative has filed a lawsuit calling for all military absentee ballots to be sequestered during the election until their authenticity can be validated. The lawsuit comes after a Milwaukee County election official used her position to commit election fraud, fraud, faking three military ballot requests and sending the fake ballots to the representative's address. The election official was immediately fired and faces up to five years in prison, according to the Associated Press. However, Republican Representative Janelle Bryanchin claims that the successful fraud attempt has exposed a weakness in the Wisconsin voting system and demands that it be addressed before counting military ballots. In Wisconsin, military voters are not required to register, meaning they can request absentee ballots without providing a photo ID. In 2018, only 2,700 military ballots were issued, not enough to change the outcome of any election. A new report from a policy think tank reveals that, of all the states, Wisconsin spent the greatest share of the federal COVID relief money on economic development. According to the report, Wisconsin spent nearly 56% of the funds it received in the American Rescue Plan Act on supporting the economy. These spending decisions were made mostly by Governor Evers, who prioritizes revitalizing downtowns and workforce development projects, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. Many of the programs that Wisconsin supported using federal funds are scheduled to end by the end of the year, as the COVID aid winds to an end. Adam Steen, a Republican write-in challenger to Speaker of the Wisconsin Assembly Robin Voss, is under investigation by the Republican Party for receiving illegal donations. In order to donate money to the Steen campaign, it appears that a Trump-backed political action committee donated large sums of money to the Langlade County Republican Party, who in turn donated to Steen's campaign. Political action committees are legally restricted in Wisconsin to only donating up to $1,000 to an assembly candidate, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. However, they are unrestricted in the amount of money they can donate to a party office, which can in turn donate an unrestricted amount to the candidate. In this case, the Save America Political Action Committee gave the gave to the Langley GOP office, which in turn donated more than $20,000 to the Steen campaign. Langlade County is in northern Wisconsin, while Steen is running in Racine in the southeast corner of the state. A measure to extend the length of terms for Madison City Council failed to pass the two-thirds majority it needed in order to appear as a referendum in the spring elections, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The measure, which would have staggered terms so that older persons served three years on the council instead of the current two, needed just one more vote to pass, so it could be reconsidered at the council's next regular meeting in late November. The motion is very similar to a non-binding referendum last year that was rejected by voters by a 10-point margin. Three design teams that were picked to propose plans for an improved Lake Monona waterfront will present their proposals to the Friends of Nolan Waterfront Committee tonight. The design proposals, which will reimagine the Law Park and Monona Terrace section of the city, could drastically change the look of the city's southern lakefront. The committee will select the plan they want to propose in January and will then present it to the city for consideration, which has flagged the Law Park area for improvements as part of its downtown master plan. According to the Capital Times, the proposed plan may include a Frank Lloyd Wright-designed boathouse that was commissioned in 1893 but was never constructed due to an economic downturn. This morning, the Madison City Clerk's Office reported that more than 54,000 absentee ballots had been received by the office, leaving about 5,000 absentee ballots still unreturned. Voters can deliver their absentee ballots in person tomorrow to ensure that the clerk receives their vote in time. Absentee voting is lower in this election than it was in 2020, although that is in part because of the influence of COVID. Absentee voting is still higher than it was pre-pandemic. And now, on to today's top stories. Tomorrow, voters head to the polls to choose senators, representatives, governors, secretaries of state, and more candidates in one of the most consequential midterm elections. 
And in addition of the stakes, candidates hit the trail this weekend for final efforts to motivate supporters. Madison featured two notable ones, a Bernie Sanders rally downtown and a Ron Johnson stop over in Middleton. Christopher Cartwright has those details. You know, in the past, we had, you know, Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, progressives. We had differences about education and health care and the budget and all that stuff. That's, quote, democracy. But right now, I'm standing before you to tell you that this campaign is about whether or not we're going to preserve the foundations of American democracy. I trudged down rain-soaked streets as candidates and political celebrities poured into Madison for a final hurried deluge of rallies, door-knocking, and pamphlets fighting for Wisconsin's future. The first stop lay with the Orpheum Theater on Friday night, where over 500 people packed to hear Bernie Sanders speak as part of the Our Future Is Now Get Out the Vote Tour. Sponsored by NextGen America, a political action committee, and Move On, a progressive advocacy group, the event resembled a concert more than a standard campaign event. Because young people are the largest generational voting bloc, and so much of what Congress does or doesn't do will impact them more than anybody else, whether they take action on climate change, expand or try and further take away the rights of women to to choose what happened with their own bodies, whether we raise the minimum wage or not. These are issues that will impact young people. That's Christina Sensun Ramirez, the president of NextGen America. Is there a certain issue that you see as motivating people more than others, or is for you personally more important? Well, young people have a broad issue, a broad number of issues that they care about, but there are a lot of young women, especially, that have newly registered across states. There is a huge gender gap and new registrations coming from young women, young women that are outraged that the right to legal, safe abortion has been taken away from them. Going in, are you optimistic about Tuesday? How are, how are you feeling? For me, every single election, I don't try to get my hopes up. I try and fight to win on the issues that I care about and mobilize every single person I know. And that's why our work at NextGen, we have four days. We're not sleeping or doing much else until election day because we know that young people historically come out and vote on election day or as close as possible to election day. So right now is our critical moment to make sure that thousands and thousands of young people from here in Wisconsin to Michigan to Pennsylvania turn out and vote. All this money poured into a fight to push young voters out to the polls, and no one knew what might happen come Tuesday. Behind the cheerful smiles lay nerves and fear, with both political consulting jobs and the country's fate on the line. Nathan Schilling wasn't as optimistic. Uh, as in terms of the Wisconsin election, I'm, I, I'm not feeling great about um, Mandela Barnes just because at least for the Senate race, he just has significantly less funding than uh, the, the opposition. And so, you know, I'm just sort of pessimistic about that, just the state of electoral politics in the United States. The jovial mood and music couldn't fully assuage that anxious, fearful edge, especially in a climate of story after story of a Republican landslide, and occurring exactly one week after a far-right conspiracy theorist attacked Paul Pelosi, the threat of violence lingered among the crowd. Security screened the entrance while police lined the auditorium, searching for signs of trouble. At one point, pro-Palestinian protesters interrupted Senator Sanders' speech, chanting and holding a banner at the back of the auditorium. But other than that, the event proceeded without any hiccups. So let me tell you where I think we are as a nation. And it is in a difficult moment. I'm not going to kid you, this pandemic has been awful. It's not only that we've lost a million people, all over the country people are suffering from all kinds of anxieties. Kids were not able to go to school on a regular basis. Uh, older people could not have the companionship they need. The pandemic has taken a toll on us. People turn on the TV and they see uh, the damage, the, the destruction that climate change is doing, worry about the future, they worry about women's rights, they worry about democracy. These are tough times, I'm not kidding you. They are very, very tough times. But our job right now is to have the courage, and this is not easy, to understand that we are in the midst of class warfare. You know what that means? And by the looks of it, generational warfare. 
While people under 30 composed the majority of Friday's attendees, with a few notable exceptions, Johnson's rally on Sunday presented the reverse. Most people appeared to be over 40, save for young campaign workers and children brought by their parents. The maw between the two groups manifested itself in the issues talked about as well. Going into this election, what do you feel are like the, the top issues for you? Absolutely the economy. I go to the grocery store and I wonder what just happened to my money. I'm filling up my car and it's a small little car and I'm wondering again, where did all that money just go? So economy is number one. Crime. Both of my cars got um, broken into while just sitting in my driveway during the day. This ju just shouldn't be happening here. The crime fear reflects the numerous ads flooding the Wisconsin market and nation as a whole, portraying rising crime around the country and slashed police budgets. The reality, at least for Dane County, shows levels of crime remaining consistent between 2017 and 2021, based on the Wisconsin Department of Justice offense data website. The Madison Police Department, meanwhile, increased its budget by over $1.2 million from 2021 to 2022, a trend seen around the country. Then Ron Johnson's tour bus pulled into the parking lot, and the 100 or so people gathered in to hear the senator speak. He echoed talk of rising crime and the perceived failures of the Biden administration, focusing on their actions rather than potential solutions. Why, why does the other side elect leaders like that? And it's again, it's not because they're bad people, but it's I I attribute it to a highly biased media. Right? Yeah. I, I, I keep saying, you know, in a, in a sane world with an unbiased media, they wouldn't be nominating people like Mandela Barnes. They they wouldn't be electing those kind of leaders. Okay, but but it's an insane world brought to you by a highly biased, uh, often leftist media. Heads turned and looked at me. I glanced over at the yard signs clustering the nearby lawn. Ron Johnson, fighting for truth. Is it any wonder why so many of our fellow citizens, basically good people, you know, really have a veil over their eyes? If they're not understanding the division, destruction that the left has wrought on this nation. We're, by the way, we're not the dividers. We're, we're, not, we're not the angry ones. The vast majority of Wisconsinites, Americans, do love this country. Okay, I'm, I'm a little cons concerned about young people because they've been indoctrinated yeah. now. Because we're gonna we have to help them along. We're gonna we're gonna have to educate them. You know, we have to stop this indoctrination in our schools. Campaign staffers were forbidden from talking to the press, save for the official communications coordinators like Mike Marinella, Ron Johnson's campaign press secretary. He echoed the Democrat consultants with his election outlook. You know, Wisconsin's always a 50-50 state. You really, you really can't predict, um, you know, no matter what the polls say. So I think, uh, you know, we're, we're excited about it. Uh, we're feeling good, but we're cautiously, I would say we're cautiously optimistic. A strong southwest wind blew as I left the crowd, while Fox and ABC and NPR reporters scurried around talking to more supporters and campaign representatives. Soon, we'd all head back to our offices to edit the clips and add the fact checks and ensure we represented the fight fairly for better or for worse. And across the state, voters lined up to elect their future representatives in early voting, while the Detroit Lions obliterated the Packers in yet another game in a long line of defeats. This is Christopher Cartwright reporting for WORT. Warm weather is on the horizon for this week, uh, but don't get too excited as this weekend is looking to drop into classic November temperatures. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis has your full weather breakdown. The weather in Madison is going to continue to fluctuate greatly this week, just like it had last. But this week, an even greater difference. But let's not get too ahead yet, and let's hop into today's weather. The temperature outside right now is at 40 degrees, but it feels like 38 due to the cloud coverage in the 50% and low wind speeds coming from the east-northeast. The historical average for today's temperature in Madison is 53.71 degrees, so we are sitting right below that average with today's highs reaching 49 degrees. Ragweed pollen is in the low category and humidity is currently sitting at 64%, even with the cooler temperatures that we have been seeing. Daylight savings may have been throwing you off with the earlier sunrise and sunset. 
The sun is now not beginning to rise until around 6.41 a.m. and sets at 4.40 p.m., making it feel like we're moving into the winter even faster than before. Looking into tonight, temperatures will continue to drop with a low chance for some rain into the evening. Wind speeds in the morning are looking to be between 10 and 15 miles per hour, and with the high pressure system continuing to push through, it should keep us dry into tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be very cloudy with more cloud coverage pushing into the evening. The high for Tuesday is looking to reach the mid-50s. Tuesday night into Wednesday is looking to heat up quite a bit, with the high looking to reach the upper 60s, and we are still going to be seeing those high wind speeds from 10 to 15 miles per hour blowing from the south. There will be possibility for precipitation, although it is low right now, and there could be some potential cloud cover that can make those high 60 temperatures feel much lower. Thursday is looking to be the warmest day of the week before Madison is hit with some pretty cold temperatures. Thursday is looking to reach the low 70s, but with the high wind speeds between 10 and 20 miles per hour and cloud coverage, the real field temperatures could feel much cooler. We should be clear of precipitation during the day with low chances, but higher chances will appear moving into the evening hours. And Friday, we will be seeing our big hit of cold weather, with the warm front making its way out of the area. Winds will vary between 15 and 25 miles per hour coming from the west and the south, with even higher wind gusts. Sudden clouds will be intervaling, and there's a small chance for a mix of rain and snow showers. But into Saturday, there may be development for some snow showers mixed with very low temperatures dropping into the 20s and consistently high wind speeds. With your WORT weather report here in Madison, I'm Caitlin Davis. Enjoy the warm temperatures Wednesday and Thursday before the cold arrives. The time right now is 6.23 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news right here on WORT. In just over 12 hours, polling places across the country will be opening their doors as people go to vote for the 2022 fall election. With 150 polling places around just the city of Madison, WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Dane County Clerk Scott McDonnell about where to go to vote and everything else you need to know before heading to the polls. Election Day is tomorrow, and joining me now to go over everything that you need to know before heading to the polls is Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald. Uh, Scott, I know that this is probably the second busiest day of the year for you, so thank you so much for uh, joining me here. Sure, no problem. So, Scott, uh, like I said, election is tomorrow, and so just sort of starting things off, uh, there are 150 polling places across the entire city of Madison tomorrow. So uh, where where can people go to find out uh, where they can vote? Yeah, your your location may have moved, your polling place, so you should go to myvote.wi.gov to check uh, where your polling place is. Um you know, sometimes people only vote in the November elections, but there's been redistricting and other changes. So make sure you know where you're supposed to go. And and now once people get to their polling places tomorrow, just just sort of remind us of the process. What what do they need to be bringing with them? And then uh, also what should they not be bringing with them as well? Right. So, you know, if it's the if it's your regular polling place, you're, you're going to need to bring your ID for almost everyone that's going to be a driver's license. But you can use a passport or a military ID, um, and so you'll need to show that when when you're voting. However, uh, now you also may need to re-register, which you can do on election day. So if you've moved and you need to register your new location, you can use that ID if the if the address is correct. But a lot of people their address isn't the same. You know, it changes, and so you can use a bank statement, a lease, a utility bill. Those can be on your phone. So that uh, those, that's how you can uh, register at on election day. 
And now, say that there's someone out there who still is holding on to their absentee ballot. Uh, what what should those people do tomorrow? Yeah, they can deliver that to their to the polling place. So deliver it to your polling place where you would normally vote, and they can take that from you. And so, looking at the polls tomorrow, what what, what are you sort of expecting to see? Can can people be expecting to see some long lines tomorrow? I would be surprised if there were long lines, and the reason is that. We've seen record uh, early voting and absentee voting. And what that means is folks have already voted, so they're not going to be in that line. So uh, I would be surprised if there was anything more than a you know, five or ten minute line. Now, uh, across the country right now, there, there's a lot of people that are a little bit concerned about uh, poll watchers, you know, people standing at the polling locations and sort of making sure that everything is up to par. So this is sort of a two-part question. Uh, do you expect to see many poll watchers here in Dane County tomorrow? And then sort of going from there, what should people know about poll watchers? I do expect to see a lot of poll watchers Um from both political parties, from other parties, non, you know, just we have some international observers. So, yeah, there'll be people observing in the polling places around the county. And they've always done that. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a, it's a helpful thing to have that level of transparency so that people can see, yes, the rules are being observed. People are asking for IDs, things like that. Uh, so I, I'm a proponent of, of poll watchers. Uh, and of course, it's their legal right. But um, there, there's been concern about you know what you've heard from around the country in places like Michigan and others that poll watchers could be disruptive or they have cameras in the polling place. They should not have cameras. The biggest thing for voters, I mean, for the most, the main thing is there's always been poll watchers. They should not be talking to you. So that would be the one, the one thing I would want to tell voters like no one should be talking to you while you're going through the process they should only talk to the chief inspector and uh so if anyone is is talking to you that shouldn't be make sure you report that to those who are working the polls all right scott well is there anything else that you think people should know before they head over to the polls tomorrow no just that you know if you're in line the poll the polls open at seven and close at eight if you're in line before eight, then stay in that line and you'll be able to vote. There, there can be a little bit, it can be a little bit more of a line first thing in the morning and at the end of the, end of the day. But um, if you want to avoid the lines, try to, try to get in there in the middle of the day and it should be very quick. I've been talking with Dane County Clerk Scott McDonald about what you can expect for Election Day tomorrow. Uh, like Scott said, a reminder that polls are opening up at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. Scott, uh, thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, no problem. The time now is 6.30, and you're listening to the local news here on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, which means that Forward Lookout host Brenda Conkle sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings happening in Madison and Dane County this week. This week, budget deliberations finish up on the county board, an explainer on the board of canvassers, the plan commission gets ready for complicated building permits, and more. It's Monday, and that means we're talking to Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. Brenda, it is election uh, week. Uh, we've had early voting, and obviously we have no meetings on Tuesday, which is just something that they do, right? Yep. Make sure everybody has plenty of time to work the polls and get out the vote and focus on democracy. Hey, got to focus on democracy. But the county board is already in progress, is starting their budget deliberation. So uh, tell us a little about that. That got started at 6 p.m. Yep. they. Um, this is their, their final vote on the budget. Um, they have three meetings planned for this week. My guess is they'll probably be done tonight. They usually get it done in one night. But if not, they will also be meeting again on Wednesday and Thursday night. Um, and this is the meeting where they pass the operating budget, which is all the ongoing expenses, the capital budget, which is, you know, buildings and, and other big projects that they work on, a um, bunch of fees that they're going to be raising. And then they set the 2022 tax levy. So um, this is it. But it's tonight. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if they're done tonight. 
Just we're moving right along here. How about airport commission? Anything having to do with F-35s? Apparently the F-16s are gone and, and it's we you haven't heard them lately. No, yeah, it has been interesting that um, they are going to be looking at the Part 150 noise study. Um, so there will be a public meeting on that and they're, they're talking about that. They're also getting their um, audit presentation from Baker Chili. Okay, well, more budget stuff happening, but uh, is there, I think we'll just move on to the Board of Canvassers, which, of course, um, people can watch. I think they can, well, you can watch that via Zoom or in person, um, but we have a very transparent election process. So, yeah, 9 a.m. on Friday is the Board of Canvassers. So, so what do they do? Because the results on election night aren't official. Right. So they uh, they go and they double check, um, do some spot checks on things, and they count any of the provisional ballots. Um, and then they make the final determination about what the final vote is. And they'll be doing that for all the statewide offices that are being voted for in Dane County, um, as well as state senator and the assembly, representatives to Congress and the United States senator, as well as sheriff, clerk of court. And there's three referendum questions on the ballot. Let's move on to the city of Madison. We have the plan commission um, happening right now. We have some projects on Fair Oak Street. What else? Yeah, they have a lot of projects um, that are sort of complicated. So they're getting zoning changes and demolition permits and conditional use permits. And so they got a, so a bunch of big projects are in front of them. Um, so, yeah, there's the one on North Fair Oak Street. There's also one at 517 Grand Canyon Drive and 6617 Odana Drive, o- Odana Road. Um, then there's also one at, at Hughes Place at 833 Hughes Place. There's one over on Orchard Street, as well as one uh, another one on Odana Road, and then one over on Spring Court, and then Lake Mendota Drive, Mineral Point Road, Wilson Street. So there's a lot going on um, on the Plan Commission. Yeah, and that West uh, East Wilson Street, um, it looks like uh, conditional use for a nightclub. So that might be something of of interest to the Marquette neighborhood, right? Definitely. Okay. The Public Safety Review Committee is set to convene at 5 p.m. on Wednesday. You're on that committee, and you're going to get something about the Natural Hazard Mitigations Plan. And it looks like Chief Barnes um, will be stopping by as well. The chief has been talking about this for a couple months. He wants to come and give us a presentation about a data dashboard um, that is designed to determine how safe we are as a community. And it's interesting whenever, you know, crime continues to go down in most communities throughout the United States, um, but then they change the data and how they look at things to, to reestablish the need for the police department. So there's sorry, got a little editorial there on you, but yeah. hey, um, but we'll it's tough though. The FBI, the FBI asked for th- certain data, uh, different municipalities don't exactly collect the same data. So it, just in general, it's hard to compare apples to apples, right? It definitely is. And, and this is a new way of looking at our quality of life. And I think it is more towards quality of life than it is about, you know, when you think about crimes that the FBI statistics that they're going to collect it, it's definitely, I think, a little bit different. But we'll find out on Wednesday. Be interesting to see what he's got to say. Yes. And let's not forget that percentages, too, can be a little misleading, right? If you had, oh, uh, if you had one crime in 2021 and then it, two of those crimes in, in 2022, that's a, that's a 100% increase. Yeah. And they also, yeah. And they, they often do that where like they find the statistics that show, you know, one time they look at it over a five-year period, another time it's a three-year period, another time it's a 10-year period. After election day, uh, transportation committee at 6 p.m. Wednesday will be, they're going to be having one last public hearing on the Metro network redesign, which is, uh, you know, a very big deal. And a lot is changing and the public, you know, people don't like it when things change, but also <laughs> there are some legitimate concerns and there's a Title IX report. But I mean, this is really the last chance for the public to really have some influence on, or, or is it? I mean, are they adopting it or not? What's going to happen? Why are they taking public testimony if it just if they're going to pass the it? What's the only thing on their agenda? I don't know if they'll actually vote that night. They may, okay, good. they may put it off to another meeting. You know, like collect all the public information, make sure that they have some time to consider it, and then I probably vote on a different night but we'll see i i actually don't know again i was that, that seems like pretty important what <laughs> yeah. if you're gonna right if you're gonna have a public meeting to to wait and and uh to wait and weigh that feedback 
definitely and it's complicated this is this is a these are big changes that are happening and so it definitely needs a little bit of extra time finally we'll just talk about the common council executive committee meeting thursday at 5 30 virtually they'll be talking about i, I think the, um, the common council generally is trying to have more of a social media impact so they'll be talking about that right anything uh, anything else of note they're going to be looking at increasing their salaries and um also, yeah, what do you think about that? Uh, I thought one committee at least kind of put the kibosh on that. Yeah, you know, it, are, are people there for a paycheck or are they there because they want to serve the public during election yeah. time? A lot of people talk about serving the public. Once they get elected, then all of a sudden it's about how much time they're spending on things and they should be getting paid more. So um, to me, I think some increases do, but I don't think as much as what they're suggesting. Which is like almost twenty thousand dollars, twenty five thousand yeah, dollars. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and no one seems to like my idea. More alders. More alders. I like your idea. Oh, good. Why not? <laughs> I might I mean, be the only one. We we might the only two agree about this. But. Because if they, hey, they might have too much of a workload. Let you need more of them. Yeah. Right. Why have people serve on ten or twelve or fifteen committees like Mike Revere does um, when people could be serving on five or six? Um, and that would lighten everybody's workload. And then they could focus more on things going on in their districts. So to me, it makes a whole lot of sense to increase the number. All right. Well, number I feel better about that then, Brenda. Yeah. yeah and I, you know, I kind of liked it when Alders represented about 10,000 people, but we're creeping up to more like 15,000 people that they're right, representing. Yeah. And so I think people are noticing that as they're not as connected to their elders they may have once been and and they're you know representing more neighborhoods and they're you know they're being so they are sort of being stretched a little bit but I do think an increase in elders would be better than an increase in pay. Just a reminder the 4 p.m. on Friday the board of canvassers for the city of Madison will be uh, doing pretty much what the county's doing so if you feel like checking that out and make sure our elections are running smoothly um, go to forward lookout dot com for that and other resources on how you can connect with local government. So Brenda, thank you so much for putting it all together and for telling us what's happening this week in local government. Welcome. Thanks, Dylan. This Saturday is the anniversary of the publication of the Me Lai Massacre story, written by journalist Seymour Hirsch of excuse me, Seymour Hirsch, the story of 500 civilians murdered by U.S. soldiers played a pivotal role in the changing attitudes toward the Vietnam War. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. The intro audio is part of an interview in 1969 on CBS News between reporter Mike Wallace and one of the soldiers, Paul Meadlow. Well, I might have killed about uh, 10 or 15 of them. Men, women, and children. Men, women, and children. And babies. And babies. Why did you do it? Why did I do it? Because I felt like I was ordered to do it. Well, at the time, I felt like I was doing the right thing. This Saturday, November 12th, is the anniversary of the publication of the My Lai Massacre story, which became a turning point in how Americans viewed the Vietnam War. My Lai was a village where U.S. soldiers killed as many as 500 civilians in one day in 1968. Journalist Seymour Hirsch researched and wrote the story and sold it to the Dispatch News Service. On November 12, 1968, a special edition of the Washington Post with the story first hit the streets. By the next afternoon, over 30 papers had run the story, usually on the front pages, some with banner headlines, including the Chicago Sun-Times, the Philadelphia Bulletin, and the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. The New York Times did not buy the story, but the New York Post did, and gave it prominent play. Before writing the story, Hirsch had already been a reporter for 10 years. He covered the Pentagon from 1968 to 1997 for the Associated Press. There he learned that many American military staff took their oath to uphold the Constitution and their responsibility to the American people seriously. Hirsch began to learn from military sources about atrocities in Vietnam. Hirsch did other research, such as reading the Russell Tribunal, based on published accounts from the anti-war clergy and laity concerned. Hirsch knew horrible things were happening, but did not know the scale. One story he heard from 1965 was that sometimes soldiers, frustrated by finding no military targets in a village, were told by the officers, you have a mad minute, and they shot up everything in the village with tanks and machine guns. Hirsch got a news tip in 69 about a terrible massacre, but didn't initially know how bad. 
Hirsch said it was a group of American kids, a lot of rural kids from small villages across the country. It was also disproportionately African American and Latinx. They were told how bad the communists were. They had been in Vietnam for three months and lost 30% of their people through snipers. And so they began to hate, according to Hirsch. And there was a lot of ignorance about the society, about the Vietnamese culture. The U.S. Americal Division was also one of the worst and had treated past instances of soldiers killing civilians as a violation of the rules and not as a criminal act. At My Lai, soldiers were told they were going to meet the enemy for the first time. They had never seen the enemy, just been shot at. They went into the village of about 500 people. They were expecting North Vietnamese military, but there were none, just women, children, and old men. The U.S. soldiers began to murder and rape. Hirsch said, they threw babies up. This was hard for me to even in the first year and caught them on bayonets. I mean, some of the stuff I kept out of the original story. It was so awful. Hirsch reported one particular incident when the soldiers had maybe 80 people in a ditch in My Lai, and one U.S. soldier, Paul Medlow, said the Americans sprayed bullets into the ditch, killing all the women, children, and old men. Later, they heard a little two-year-old boy screaming and blood-soaked running away. Lieutenant Callie, the officer in charge, ordered Medlow plug him. Medlow, who had done much of the shooting in the ditch, couldn't do it, so Callie shot the child in the back of the head. Hirsch got Medlow to speak on the CBS Nightly News in an interview with Mike Wallace hours before Hirsch's second Milai piece came out. It was a major journalistic breakthrough to get the original piece published. Hirsch had taken it to Look and Life, where he had published before, but it was rejected. The New York Review of Books wanted to publish it, with an intro saying the war was bad, but Hirsch refused. He thought the story should stand on its own. So finally he ended up going with a friend at the Dispatch News Service. Other heroes helped bring the story to light also. Hirsch had originally gotten a tip that William Calley was being court-martialed and was able to interview him. Callie was before a military court only because of Rod Rydenauer, a fellow soldier, had flown over the area and seen the devastation. Rydenauer had heard from one of Callie's platoon that few had survived the onslaught of Milai. Rydenauer quietly got as much information as he could by talking to five men in Callie's unit. After he was discharged, he wrote a detailed 2,000-word letter with the names and ranks of the men involved and mailed copies to 30 officials in Washington. Among those included the president, 15 senators, his five Arizona congresspersons, the State Department, the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Department of the Army, and three other House members. Twenty-two of the offices later claimed they had no record of the letter, but it worked. Milai was exposed. In the end, Lieutenant Kelly was convicted of the murder of just 22 Vietnamese civilians, but President Nixon commuted his sentence to only three years house arrest. Kelly's was the only conviction from the massacre, but the public had seen the truth of the war and could not unsee it. There are lessons for today, such as the ongoing one-sided coverage we are seeing in the Russian-Ukraine war. War inevitably creates the conditions for these atrocities on all sides. And that is our story for today. For the past and past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. After being expelled from high school at the age of 20, Fran Lebowitz decided to leave her hometown and move to New York City in 1969. After working all sorts of no-skill odd jobs just to stay in the Big Apple, her big break came after being hired by Andy Warhol to write for his new magazine, Interview. Fifty years later, and after several successful books, Lebowitz now tours the country as a professional pundit. Lebowitz will be at the Overture Center tomorrow night and spoke with 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing this morning about holding the event on election night. New York mayors and the difference between odd jobs today and the odd jobs in the 1970s. This is an edited version of their full interview, which can be found in full on the WORT website. So you're going to be here in Madison on election night. Do you think you or your audience are going to be a little distracted? Well, I voted weeks ago. I voted by absentee ballot because I knew I wasn't going to be here. So, I I mean, distracted? I mean, I have been distracted profoundly by American politics since 2015. So, I, you know, I long for the days where we don't pay constant attention to politics, but that has not been at least around here for quite some time. So I probably will be distracted. There's nothing I, there's nothing I can do other than vote. Right. And this is very discouraging. 
But on the other hand, there are many people who do do other things, and they're not always the best things. Are you planning on having sort of like election updates during your presentation here in Madison, or are you just going to try and ignore it completely? Well, there's no way for me to ignore it. First of all, you know, uh, I've been doing these speaking dates since I was 27. So I just turned 72, so that's a long time. And always, during presidential election years, there were a lot of questions about politics. But the rest of the time, there really weren't. Now, really, ever since Trump ran for the president, there are questions about politics all the time. And, you know, I've been touring in Europe and Scandinavia a lot, and they're all over the world, the same thing. So uh, I expect there to be a lot of questions if I have no real way of knowing what's going on. So for... A very unusual thing. I will be hoping for some answers from the audience. Maybe they will be keeping up. Now, you've been on record as uh, not being a big fan of current Mayor Eric Adams or uh, the previous Mayor Bill de Blasio. Are there politicians out there now that you particularly admire? Boy, I wish there were. I mean, when it comes to New York City mayors, you know, uh, I can't remember. Well, I've lived in New York for more than 50 years. Uh, there are, in all that time, been only two mayors I liked. So the chances of there being a New York City mayor that I like are pretty slim. Uh, Eric Adams, I knew, was going to be horrible. I didn't even vote for him in the general election. I voted for the socialist candidate, whose name I do not recall, or did I ever really know. I am not a socialist. I wouldn't recognize her in a crowd of one, but I did not want to be even a billionth responsible for Eric Adams, uh, who I knew was going to be a disaster. And it's hard for me to understand how people didn't know. He's hardly a subtle character. Uh, so he's terrible. And I said to people uh, all along, I mean, de Blasio was the mayor. The good thing was, especially in a second term, it really brought New Yorkers together because everyone hated him. <laughs> it didn't matter, you know, black people, white people, rich people, poor people, men, women, Republicans, Democrats. We were united in our hatred for de Blasio. But when Eric Adams appeared, I said to people, he's going to make you long for de Blasio. And he was in office like two months before people started saying, maybe de Blasio wasn't that bad. He was, but there can always be someone worse. We've certainly learned that. So let's uh, turn to sort of your career. You're at a stage of your career, much like uh, the late period Mark Twain or Dorothy Parker, where you're now renowned primarily as a public speaker. Back when you were working odd jobs in New York City, did you ever think people would be paying money just to hear your opinions? No, I never (laughs) thought about it. I mean, truthfully, you know, I mean, I had a zillion of those jobs that, the one good thing about, you know, uh, like, you know, being in like the early 70s, um, New York was full of bad jobs. You could get a different bad job every week. There were just millions of bad jobs. They were very available. Um, and you could go from one to the other, which I did. I was constantly changing my bad jobs because I kept thinking, I don't like this job. I'll get a better bad job. And then finally, after like a couple of years of this, I had to be honest with myself and just say, the truth is, I don't like to work. <laughs> So it didn't really matter what the job was. It turns out I'm so lazy, they haven't really invented the job that I enjoy. So uh, I, I didn't think about that at all, really, I have to tell you. You know, I think one thing that people don't realize uh, for some reason, even older people, certainly young people don't, is how much the world changes. The world changes so much that no same, I mean, there are some things that say the same. So I suppose if you were like a wonderful basketball player in 1960, you wanted to be a professional basketball player, there's still professional basketball, you know. But so many things change that a lot of things that exist now didn't exist at all, so no one could have imagined them. So what was the oddest job you had back in the day? Oh, you know, I don't know what the oddest one. I was, a, uh, I cleaned apartments. Uh, that's not odd. Um, with it, I had a small specialty in Venetian blinds, which don't really exist much anymore, but then all New York City rental apartments had these metal Venetian blinds, and no one wanted to clean them. And I would clean them, and I, during that period, I went to my parents once uh, for dinner, and my mother looked at my hands. I had these big red, like, cuts on my hands. She said, what are you doing? So I explained to her, I'm cleaning Venetian blinds. You have to put your hand in. She goes, that's not how you do it. Put them in the bathtub, take them down, put them in the bathtub. And then my life became much easier. <laughs> um, so I had that Venetian cleaning, a Venetian blind cleaning job. Um, I had a job once, I, I can't remember where this place was, a bar was opening up. I don't think it lasted too long. Uh, and it was one of the first kind of theme bars. It was called Your Father's Mustache. And they hired a bunch of kids to wear these like paper mustaches and these straw hats and give out free passes for beer. And I did that for a while. I was not good at that either. I drove a taxi. I was also a chauffeur, a private chauffeur. 
because when I came to New York, A, I didn't know a single person, not one person. And I also, as you mentioned before, didn't finish high school, although it's not an accomplishment to have been expelled from high school by the age of 20. If you're going to get expelled from high school, you have to get expelled before that. <laughs> so that was not an act of a precocious person. Um, but I, uh, I didn't know how to type. And if you were a girl in the you know, 70s or 60s or 50s, any anyway, time before that, that's the job you had. That was the only job you'd get in an office um, because that's what offices were like. And there were these, there were, depending upon the size of the business, you'd go into a giant room and there would be dozens of women typing. And then around that big room were offices where men were and you were typing the stuff for the men. And it's very interesting to me how... Men could not type. It was out of the question that a man would know how to type, that a man could not possibly type. And then they invented computers, and all of a sudden, men could type. So apparently, it was like the machine that they couldn't do. Um, so I couldn't type, and I, did, I didn't want to wait tables. A lot of my friends did that, and I really didn't want to do that. I really didn't want to smile at men for money, <laughs> and I never did that. That's the one job I really did. I did, never did. But I would do pretty much you know, any job where you didn't need any skills. You know, I mean, that was really my problem was I didn't have any skills. I didn't have, you know, uh, any diplomas and I didn't know anyone. So it wasn't, you know, there was only a certain kind of job available. All right. We've been speaking with Fran Leibowitz. Fran Leibowitz will be at Madison's Overture Center on Tuesday, November 8th at 7.30 p.m. in a conversation with Jonathan Sutton. For more information about her upcoming speaking engagements, go to FranLeibowitz.com. Fran Leibowitz, thanks for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz. Thank you very much. Constant election news got you down? Feature contributor Harry Richardson has you covered with two new movie reviews. First, the riveting, fatalistic story of two former friends in 1923 Ireland, the Banshees of Inna Sheeran on the big screen. Then, on the lighter side, the fun new sequel, Enola Holmes 2, on the small screen. What I've decided to do is this. I have a set of shears at home. And each time you bother me, I'll take one of my fingers off with them. Starting from now. That was a clip from the trailer for The Banshees of Inisherin, a bleak new Irish film written and directed by Martin McDonough, who also directed the outstanding Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. McDonough also did In Burges, which also featured Colin Farrell and Brenda Gleeson. Banshees is set on the isolated mythical island off the west coast of Ireland in 1923. As the Irish on the mainland are tearing each other apart over religion and land, two former friends become engaged in a grinding struggle of their own. The land is stark yet beautiful, with stone borders along the roads and byways, with frequent rains fit for raising sheep but not much else. People watch the occasional explosions on the mainland apprehensively. In small towns, everyone knows everyone else's business. This place, with its stark loneliness and long sunsets, is no different. Colm Gleason is a depressed fiddle player who decides to dedicate himself to writing and playing music. He believes that only art lives on. Colin, 60-something, is feeling death closing in and is desperate to leave his mark. To better use his time, he abruptly tells his lifelong friend, the slow-witted Patrick Farrell, their friendship is over. Patrick is initially disbelieving, then apologetic, then upset. Patrick refuses to accept Combs' decision. Combs becomes so determined to be rid of Patrick that he says, If you keep talking to me and annoying me, I'm going to cut off a finger and throw it at you every time you bother me. Patrick and the other patrons at the bar are horrified. They quickly shush Patrick before he can reply. This sets up a horrible chain of events. Patrick is comforted by his sister, Shibo Kiri Condon, the smartest person in town, and in her way is depressed as Colm. Dominic, Barry Keoghan, the town misfit and son of the town's cruel constable, also tries to help Patrick. An outstanding cast, especially Farrell and Gleason, a well-done and fatalistic tale of loss, loneliness, and depression. There are a few notes of humor. The movie is not for everyone, but I found it well worth watching. See it on the big screen, if you can do so safely for its gorgeous setting on Inishmore and Ockle Islands, the real islands off Galway, Ireland. Now for a more light-hearted tale, a sequel to a popular detective story. Find your allies, work with them, and you will become more of who you are. Stop that! You could be magnificent. 
That was a clip from the trailer for Enola Holmes 2, the sequel to the original, again directed by Harry Bradbeer. Bradbeer co-wrote the screenplay with Jack Thorne. It's based on the young adult series by Nancy Springer. It just started playing on Netflix. I enjoyed this as much as the original. It brings back most of a fun cast led by Millie Bobby Brown as Sherlock Holmes' younger sister. Sherlock is again well played by Henry Cavill. We also get several amusing, effective bits with Helen Bonham Carter as their militant feminist mom. After solving her first case, see last movie, Enola decides to strike out on her own, opening her own storefront detective agency. This goes amusingly, yet poignantly, awry because of the sexism of Victorian England and because she is overshadowed by her older brother. Enola is literally about to pack it in when she gets her first case from Bessie, Sorona Suling Bliss, a sad-eyed child worker at the match factory. Bessie wants to hire Enola to find her older sister, Sarah Chapman, Hannah Dodd, who has disappeared. Enola assesses the situation and sympathetically says, We can discuss my fee later. Bessie takes her home, and Enola sees firsthand London's Lower East Side with its rundown tenement housing, streets overflowing with sewage, and toxic spewing factories. Bessie also introduces her to the drudgery, brutality, and odor of the giant match factory. Enola gets work there. She is first screened for typhus to discover why Sarah went missing. She is soon in over her head and reluctantly receives help from her brother, who is working on his own puzzling case. These two cases, not surprisingly, eventually overlap. There are a lot of fun action scenes here. A couple of good villains, especially David Thewlis as a shady, sinister Scotland Yard commissioner, and a surprise villain I won't reveal. We also get a satisfying ending, which leaves room for another sequel, and I'd be fine with that. At the risk of a spoiler, the victorious Match Girl strike of 1888 really happened. Most of the Match Girls were Irish. They helped inspire the successful dock workers strike of 1889 that gave birth to the modern British labor movement. Many dock workers were Irish relatives of the Match Girls. The Salvation Army later started a safer factory that did not use white phosphorus. It wasn't until 1910, though, that white phosphorus was banned by Parliament, making the work safer for Match Girls. For WT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Your reporter was Christopher Cartwright. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan, Brian Standing with the 8 o'clock buzz, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered this show. Nate Weggie Hout produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I've been your host, Sam Swartz.